Welcome to Reflection as a Service. This is Paul Merrill, and I'm joined by my co-host. Hey, I'm James Jeffers. And we're here to talk about entrepreneurship and software engineering. And uh, we're going to be joined tonight by Chase Schaefer. How's it going, James? It's going, it's going good. It's been a very busy week. I, I'm looking forward to having all these projects done and over with. This is So you just got packed up with a whole bunch of projects all at once, right? Yeah. And that's like the, the best kind of problem that you can have. Um, well, I think probably a better problem is there are so many checks piled up on my desk, I just can't get to the bank to cash them all. That would be a good problem. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> that would be terrific. Well, I think we're going to learn about that tonight. Um, we're going to focus on entrepreneurship. And so Chase Schaefer, Chase co-founded Capigami Inc., where he de developed the largest and most popular shopping list, pantry organizer, and coupon application on the Android and iOS marketplaces. Chase wore many hats, including developing a robust and scalable infrastructure to support hundreds of thousands of concurrent users to managing support and customer interaction. Out of Milk is currently the most downloaded shopping and pantry organizer in the world. That's awesome. So welcome to the show. And we're looking forward to talking to you all about Out of Milk and your development background and all that. Sure, bring it on. <laughs> Thanks for being here. So we started working with... Uh... Chase at a, a mutual client, we'll call it. Yes. And so, and then, um, you like it kind of needed like you and your brother working there, which was unusual. I never worked with uh, a pair of brothers um, at at this, you know, basically across the aisle from each other, and you can kind of see the family resemblance. Um, but I'm better looking in every way. Right. I'm nicer. <laughs> uh, nicer. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's got a pretty big car. So. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I was like, that's kind of, it's kind of interesting, but then things are really interesting when we were out to lunch one day and we started hearing about your background, about how you got into computers and how you, I mean, you had this great story about going out to San Francisco for the first time and experiencing some of the, uh, the restaurants there. And I was like, oh, this, this is pretty cool. So we were like, we, we got to have shape. We got to have Chase on. We got to talk to him. So why don't you tell us what you did? Like, how, how did it go? How did you get into computer science in the first place? Sure. Uh, honestly, video games. Uh, my brother and I grew up playing video games on the on the PC, you know, like Doom, Wolfenstein, all that. And then you start playing, like, I want I want my gun to do this, or I want the level to do this, or I want to make this for my friends to play in. And so you start learning how to, you know, build a map. And then you want to make the map do something. So you kind of learn how to read a little code here and there, make it do something. And it just kind of kept spiraling. Like all of a sudden you realize like, man, this is like really awesome. So you just kind of find that spark, I guess. And it all came from just wanting to make better video games for my friends. That's awesome. So you, you were young, like what, in high school or something? Oh or gosh, no. Uh, I, I built my first computer when I was 11 and I probably started playing games immediately after that, so I've been about 12 or 13. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I would go to Walden Books, which I don't think exists anymore, and no. beg my parents <laughs> to buy me like like Java 1.2 or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was already in school. I was in college. I don't know. That. I just threw a number out there. I don't remember what yeah. the number was. What childhood did you have where you had to beg your parents, buy me Java? I know, I know. What, what else is going on there? Like, <laughs> we don't need to get into that. But, um, it was a horrible childhood. <laughs> now you have to apologize to your folks on, on, on recording. So, 
let's see. So, so what happened from there? Did you, you, did you get exposure within the school system to more programming or? Uh, no, honestly, I mean, back then computers were still, you know, those mystical beings to schools and most adults. Uh, so it really was just a hobby. I would like a friend would get a new computer. So you're at the house and you like tinker with it as much as possible before the parents get mad at you for breaking something and all that. And then finally around high school, I would say is when computers were mainstream for all, like most of my friends had them, you know, the major video game consoles were coming out like Xbox and all that stuff. So that technology group, you know, kind of was really growing at that time. So I finally had friends in high school who also had similar interests. So now I had someone I could talk to about it and trade information with and, you know, like, how'd you write that program and things like that. So it's kind of like a mutual learning experience in high school that cemented that's what I wanted to go to school for. Cool, cool. And so then you went to college and studied studied at DeVry? Science, yeah, DeVry. Okay. Which, uh, if you see their commercials now, <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> but when I went, it was really, really good. Yeah. Just well, disregard the commercials now. Well, I can tell by what you've accomplished that there was something good there, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's something good there somewhere along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about, was Adam Milk your first gig out of school or what? No, so uh, out of, out of uh, college, um, I went to work for a company called Neighborhood America, where uh, I worked I worked with them as, I started there as a uh, website engineer, just like HTML, CSS, all that stuff. Then I moved my way, I finally worked my way to the programming team where uh, I helped them build social networking platforms that used like uh, scripts, food network, etc. for like uh, Rate MySpace, the next TV star, all that stuff. And then um, I got recruited from that team to work in mobile. And we built one of the first large-scale mobile platforms. And that's what gave me the itch for the mobile field. So we built that. Then I left there. I worked with Paul at a couple companies here and there doing some, you know, stuff, which ultimately ended up in Adam Milk. Cool. And Paul's your brother. We talked yeah, about Paul's your brother, brother earlier. Paul's your brother. The one that's not as good looking as you. He's not here to defend himself, so. <laughs> he knows. That's rough. <laughs> why, did you, why did you guys decide to do Adam Milk? I mean, well, we were guys sitting around the apartment one night and said, yeah, you know, this seems like this will take off. What was it like? So, you know, Android had, was really just starting to get its legs. And as developers, or people in tech at least, we can always agree, you can't stop learning. If you stop learning, you're done in the industry, or you're gonna be relegated to the same thing for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so we like, just always in the quest to learn. And so Android was getting popular, and we decided, you know, man, we need to learn Android. Like, this is new, it's awesome, let's learn it. And so, you know, we kind of had that driver reading it, but Paul and I never really got like super into it because we're busy with work. But another guy at the company, Marvin, he comes up to us one day and he's like, hey, I, I decided to start building a project last night. And like he showed us and it was like literally the very first version of what would ultimately come out of Milk. It was just a list keeping app on his phone. We're like, wow, you made a, you made a bullet list on your phone. That's amazing. <laughs> You're like, let's work on it together. And so we all started working on it together and just learning Android, learning how to build web services that Android can talk to, just the whole, listen, it was purely a hobby project. And then one day Marvin's like, hey, I threw it on the, uh, the Play Store, or the Google Store last night. People are downloading it. <laughs> a lot of people are downloading it. A ton of people are, like, just kind of going up and up and up. Oh my God, guys, I think our hobby turned into something. 
it was purely an educational project that we accidentally made something of. So was it already a, a list for shopping at that point, or was it something different? So Marvin decided when he wrote the first version of this program on his own, he needed an idea. And he said that he was tired of going to the grocery store and buying things he already had. So he originally built it as like a cataloging system of what was already in his fridge. And so we just kept adding more features to it and refining it. And it was just like this completely organic growth. Like the feature sets we added that people were like, wow, that's so clever. What a great idea. Well, really it just came from the fact that we had such a high adoption rate that we were just getting so many feature requests and like they were just given to us. So like a lot of this stuff is really cool. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we just had a, a lot of people tell us they wanted that. Yeah. And so it just kind of organically got to where it became really good. So at, at one point we are like, oh, okay, there's gotta be some money involved in this. So we uh we used to basically after work, we'd go straight to my apartment. I'd be sitting on the couch, Paul would be in my easy chair, Marvin would be stretched out probably on the floor or something. And uh at the time, I was doing our support, and this ticket comes in, and this guy's like, hey, I couldn't find your phone number, but I checked out your app. It's amazing. I'd love to talk to you about a possible venture. And, like, at this point, we never even, like, considered that, right? Like, for us, it's still, like, a hobby. Like, a, we had a cool app that was popular. It's a fun hobby. We were paying all the server bills out of our own money, out of our own pockets and everything. It was expensive, buying licenses and all that, but it was fun. And all of a sudden, this world, like, just in our Zendesk inbox, was like, oh, I never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> so we called this guy, and he told us, like, yeah, like, you know, who have you talked to for funding so far? Like, um, so this is the first time I ever talked to anybody? <laughs> He's like, so, like, what are your, he starts asking, what are your DAUs? What are your MAUs? What are you, like, what are your, I'm like, uh, so what's a DAU? <laughs> He's like, that's a daily active user. And like to him, he can't believe, like we didn't even know these terms, right? Because it's what he lives in, breathes every day. Like, man, like if you want us to be interested in like seeking venture capital with you, you've got to get us ready. And so uh, this guy, his name is Sandy. He reached out to us through the support portal. We got to talk to him. And he basically coached us from start to finish on how to get ready to, to seek funding, find it and run with it, right? And he ended up setting up a partnership with a firm out in San Francisco. He helped us pitch to them and all that. And they created a, a joint venture and then jointly invested in us. And it was like a whirlwind. Like, it wasn't like, like, you know, months. I'm talking, it was just like, yeah, we want to do it. And once you got here in San Francisco, be out here like next month, let's do it. And it just took off like a rocket. It was overwhelming. Wow. It was. Did you go in the next day at work and say like, uh, <laughs> peace out? There was, so, I mean, it realistically took like a couple weeks right, before we even knew that we were going to get funding. So it was a very long couple of weeks. And I'm like, man, we're making all these plans for the future here. I don't know if I'm going to be here. And, and like, but there was three of us there that were all going to be leaving if this went through. Because yeah. my brother worked with me there. Oh, you guys were all working at the same company. Yeah. And the other guy, Marvin, worked there. Uh, and how big, of, were you all on the same team at the same company? Yeah. And, and how uh, big of how big of a team was it? Uh, I think there was like fourteen people total at the company. That's at the company. <laughs> yeah, so this is a huge impact on that. Company. Yeah, it's a huge impact. And so one day, we went to like, hey, you know, um, we've had this offer of funding. They want us to come out to San Francisco. Um, we all three of us are going to be leaving. Um, what can we do to help? And like, he literally 
was overjoyed. Like he's like, hey, that's awesome. I would love for you guys to make it and have your own company and everything. And so he was stressed out, but like never, never once was like a moment of negativity or anything. Like he's just a great guy. That's awesome. Now, so, was that something that you knew about him before this, or like did you did you work for him because you knew he was going to be that way? I didn't work because I knew he would you know be that way, particularly about something like this. But I knew he was a great guy because. He's pretty well respected in the community. Um, Paul actually worked there like a year before I joined up there, so he vouched for him. And like you can just meet somebody and like this is an outstanding guy. So, so we're talking with Chase Schaefer. I'm Paul Merrill, and I'm here with James Jeffers. Um, we're sponsored by my company, Beaufort Fairmont Automated Testing Services. So if you ever need uh, automated testing, come to us. That's what we what we work on. And also Code Providence, James's consulting group, but. Uh, we're talking with Chase Schaefer about entrepreneurship and his journey in software development and creating his first company. I guess that was your first company, right? Yeah. Did you even have a business entity? No. No, nothing. And that was a whole struggle in itself. Because they had to buy something. And there was no, there's no business for them to buy, right? That and the fact that Marvin, our third co-founder, was here on the H-1B. Oh. So going from one company to another, uh, yeah, that was really hard. <laughs> Yeah. We had to get a lot that I didn't realize how expensive immigration lawyers were. <laughs> that sucked. <laughs> well, you got all that worked out, and then you're sitting here with this great product that lots and lots of people are using. How many users did you get up to? Daily active users, or uh, so whatever stats you want to throw at us. Yeah, so it's been um, at this point, it's been like a couple of years, so numbers are specific numbers are hard to remember, but we had around 200 and something. Um, daily active users on average, but um, on weekends we had giant spikes to where we could have 200 something thousand users like on the system at that time, um, spiking up to like 500,000 users uh, or plus per day. Um, total installs was around 30, 27 million oh when, we, when we left the company, when we sold it. Wow. Um, yeah, does, 27 that, million. does that count like different versions of the product? Like if someone, if someone bought version one and then they came back and bought version two, they're counted twice. Yeah, and there, there's definitely, it's hard to see numbers because like uh, we were the default app on some, like we came pre-installed with some Sony devices. Oh wow. And we didn't get stats from that. So we have no idea like how many that was. Um, there was some, there's still some fudgery in the Google Play Store where they make estimates where like it could be higher or lower. So it's really hard to get, like, and it could be a lot. Like it could be a whole lot. Um, like at one point we were seeing that our Google was like over a million off at one point. Wow. And then, uh, but yeah, it's somewhere around 27 million. That's insane. It's about 200,000 ish a day. That's, I can comprehend that. That's writing, writing something yourself that that many people would want to use. So 200,000 people a day. Or are you saying, I mean, you've worked on applications that use that many people before. Or yeah, they use that many people. Yeah. <laughs> that that many people use before. I can't, so, um, so, I mean, what was the structure like? Would you guys, the, I mean, you took, you took money as like investment. So right. how much of the company did you retain? Uh, are you, are you, you able to talk about yeah, um, yeah, can you, I don't know if I want to go into the specific numbers, okay. but um, the investors that we went with, um, once they kind of started courting us, we started getting a lot of, you know, I guess news travels fast. These guys are reasons. We should get like other offers. Um, we ended up going with the original guys who um, were interested in us because they were more interested in us as a team 
and instead of the money that the team could make. And you start meeting with these investors and you quickly learn that. So like you, you meet, meet with, you know, some guy who wants to invest in your company. And when you walk in, he immediately starts asking, tell me about you. And like, you know, that's a guy who wants to invest in a good team. Whereas you go to someone else and they say, so show me your stats. And that's the first thing they say when they meet you. And you, you kind of start to think, all right, these are the guys I want to work with. The ones who are more interested in making us a successful team and company instead of just making us a number. So we picked those investors who cared about us as a team. And uh, they they knew that it was our first time running a company, none of us ever come before. They knew we'd never sought investment before. And um, they honestly, they really coached us through the whole thing, even though they were the ones that had the most to take. They were very generous with what they gave us. And like we truly just got luck in the draw. Like our investors were these extremely ethical, open, honest guys. And uh, when they made us an offer, we met with the legal team and we showed them the papers and they're like, wow, this is, this is a great offer. You're taking this, right? And that's when we're like, yeah, I guess so. And, and like, there was, I can't say there was any skill there at all because it was just purely luck of the draw. Like we just got very generous, a very generous offer of investment. And people are like, man, how'd you negotiate that? I didn't. Like, I didn't even know what to negotiate. I don't even know how these deals work. <laughs> but, now, but there was there was skill involved in terms of your development as as a programmer up to that point. I mean, I've got to assume that there is a whole lot of value in writing code from the age of eleven or twelve up until the point where you get involved in this. And I assume your twenties or mid twenties or something like that. Thirty-one. Oh, oh, okay. All right. So, what? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just guess that I mean that's that's a long period of time to be doing this. You had already passed the ten thousand hour mark. You were yeah. you're well over over that number. Well, I, I mean, we've all worked in the field long enough to you, you meet developers and you're like, okay, this person definitely like you can tell when someone started developing in college because they needed a major versus someone who's loved programming. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know plenty of programmers who are like that, but you can definitely see a passion. Yeah, difference in those people. You said yes to the to, to the deal, and with one of their conditions, like, hey, you've got to come out in San Francisco, and yeah. and run it from here. So we were all in Pensacola, Florida at the time, and they're like, yeah, we want to invest in you. Um, let's do it, but we need you out here in San Francisco immediately. We want to put you in front of people that can help you. We need you to start getting involved in the tech scene here because it's a very small scene. All the companies out there know each other because they all work on the same. They're like this one road. On called Second Street in the uh, Soma district, and like that's where like every startup is on that street. Everybody knows each other. He's like, y'all gotta get out here. And so over the course of just a couple weeks, we packed up, found a place to live, and moved out to San Francisco. And it was just like I think three weeks. It was fast. That is fast. That's crazy. So did your life change at that point? Yeah, I mean, I mean obviously it changed <laughs> if you're moving. And- and all that, but like I was it, born and raised in the South, and all of a sudden I lived in California <laughs> in the heart of San Francisco. It was culture shock to say the least. Yeah. It, was, it, it was very extremely overwhelming. I mean, even just talking to people, I was like, I don't know how to communicate with these people. We're on different <laughs> wavelengths because <laughs> they've been doing this for a long time. They've been in yeah. this game, learning how it works for for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. you know, I felt like a um, 
what's the little show about the the country folks that make it rich off the oil? Yeah, the Beverly Hills. Yeah, you know, it's like I felt like the Beverly Hillbillies out there. Like, I don't know anything. <laughs> Look, Paul, we got ourselves a cement pond. <laughs> I mean, have you guys heard of the uh, the little known company called uh, Airbnb? Yeah, I may, <laughs> I may have heard. It's a little company, right? Our, our very first they have these called drink ups all the time, where all the startups, some startup decides to drink up, they pay for all the drinks and everything, and you go out there and socialize. We went to our very first one, and I'm shaking this guy's hand, and he's like, yeah, I forget his name, I'm so-and-so, I'm the founder of Airbnb. It's like, oh, cool, what's Airbnb? Are you serious? <laughs> and then he came out as the guy that didn't know what Airbnb was. <laughs> oh, no. It was a whole different world up there. <laughs> wow, that's cool. How long were you in, in San Francisco? Uh... Only about two and a half, maybe three years. We went up there, we grew the company, and ultimately we ended up getting an offer when we weren't even looking for an offer. I didn't think about that. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up selling, and then I immediately came to North Carolina. And why'd you pick North Carolina? Uh, I missed the South, or South-ish. Yeah. Um, San Francisco and California wasn't for me. I look here, and there, the tech scene here is incredible. It's it's growing so fast. There's already so much established talent here. I really do think that there won't be many more years before this is like the, the tech hub of this region. I really of like the southeast. Yeah, I really yeah, I really think so. What's it competing with in the southeast right now? Like Austin? Yeah. I, I would say probably Atlanta. Atlanta's startups really? is just busting right now. Uh there's Atlanta's just filling up with uh startup incubators and venture capitalists and I've got a couple friends who moved to Atlanta recently for startups but I really do think North Carolina is going to be the one that that wins there's so much talent here you know it's it's interesting to me because I went to a conference a technical conference down in Atlanta a few years ago and I started asking around to kind of figure out who knew who and where everybody was from and whatever and people didn't know each other and it may have just been this one conference it may have just been that particular pool from that conference and the marketing for it and stuff but it seemed to me that there was like this fundamental difference about Atlanta versus the Triangle specifically. And part of it, I think, is you in the Triangle, you've got these split up towns, but they're all connected by these major arteries of roads. So if you want to go to a meetup in Durham tonight, you can get there from South Cary. I can get there in you know 30 minutes when, when there's no traffic. Um, and you can get all around and you've got really great companies starting up in Durham. You've got them in downtown Raleigh. And it just, I don't know, it seems like the community here is really, really strong. Whereas in Atlanta, to get from one side of town to the other, it might take an hour and 15 yeah. minutes or, or something, you know? So I just wondered if that might have been part of it. Plus, it seems to me that Atlanta's like basis is, um, and, and the way that it's growing, it looks like it's more mature manufacturing type businesses, bottling and things like that. But I, I, I don't know, what, I probably don't know enough to be talking about this, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Atlanta's, Tech scene is probably um, might be much bigger than I know. It's it's, about. it's bigger than what's here right now. Really, but I don't think it's going to end up being bigger than what North Carolina can be, specifically this region we're currently in. Yeah, because you know that. So here's great, right? So you've got high tech. You've got you know Durham with its old history, all its old history, but it's also modern, and awesome nightlife. It's fun. You can drive ten minutes outside and be in the country and do whatever you want. Come back and work on you know, whatever high-tech startup you want to be at. It's like, the region is just perfect. It's beautiful and awesome. You can actually drive places. And uh, it's not hard to sell people on coming here. You you, you know, I, I try to recruit people. I'm like, yeah, where are you? North Carolina. I'm like, oh, okay. 
I'm like, well, first of all, let me tell you the cost of living. Let me tell you how, <laughs> let me tell you how beautiful it is. And uh, let me tell you what's going on here. I'm like, wow, that's... Yeah, you're two hours from the coast, two yeah. hours from the mountains, um, really good climate. Uh, in term, I mean, I grew up, we all grew up from Florida. Yeah. And oh, you guys are all Florida? Yeah. yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. And so it's it's 100 degrees down there. Like, how many months out of the year? Four or five months out of the year, it's 100 degrees. The other months, it's like 90. So, I mean, it's hot. And, yeah. and I came up here, and I'm like, oh, there are more seasons than summer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And cooler summer. And occasionally, <laughs> you get to see snow. Yeah, we see snow like three times a year. Um, you can actually ski in the mountains, and then you're not far from skiable mountains either. Well, I went from Florida <laughs> to San Francisco, so like even then I saw no seasons whatsoever. Because yeah. in San Francisco, it's just like a flat 70 degrees all year round. <laughs> I come mean? here and have my very first winter, yeah. and yeah, I didn't know what to do. Just, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I love it here. It's, it's a great intermediate uh, area, um, and it's growing really, really fast, and we're making a whole bunch of the different... Um, lists for greatest places to live in a lot of different yeah. ways. This uh, this segment is brought to you by the I know well, we need tourism board. <laughs> I know, yeah. We need to get somebody from RTP in here to talk about this area. Like from the RTP? The council for that. Okay. Where yeah. the organization it is, yeah. So Chase, um, what's it like now? So you, you finished up this company in one way or the other. You were talking about getting bought out. I assume at some point you did. Mm-hmm. And now you're you're back to working for the man, um, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. Right. But you weren't doing that before. And there is a difference between the two. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences? Or are you comfortable talking about some of those yeah. those changes? So you know, without a note, you, you wake up every day and the future and success of the company is on you and your fellow co-founders. So you're making the decisions right or wrong, you gotta live with them. Um, after doing that for a couple of years and come and coming here to work for somebody else, you know, I, I will have, you have to just know like, oh, it's a relief to like wake up in the morning and be like, ah, I'm not stressed out this morning. I didn't wake up sweaty. <laughs> but um, you know, ultimately looking for a place to work here, you you now that you've had like a taste of the freedom. You don't just go to work someplace where you're like head down, um, you know, a cog in the wheel or whatever, or in the machine. So looking for a place to work here, um, I made sure I worked someplace where I knew I could still make a difference, um, be able to guide, you know, major decisions, be able to still design architectures and major feature sets and things like that. Um, So I still made sure I was able to retain that. But it is a hard pill to swallow, you know, like when I'm in a meeting and, you know, you eventually get overruled on something and you just kind of have to bite your tongue. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not that guy anymore. Like, I can't just be like, we're doing it. Um, but that's not to say I would never do it again. I mean, I would love to have my company again. I just haven't found the product I want to do that with. But there's definitely an adjustment period, but it also gives you a different outlook on things, right? So whenever you're trying to think through the future of the product and all that stuff and you're, and you're trying to get it done, you realize like, it's not just a matter of like, I want it. it you have to prove why you need it. And you, we learn like that's something you learn very quickly when you're running your own company. Cause if you just do what you want without the proof, you fail. Like whenever you have 200,000 users a day using something, it, even something as simple as we should put this button here. That like we we could seriously move a button and you would see your daily active users drop because they couldn't figure out where that damn button was or where this feature was. 
And so you start realizing, man, like if you want to move that button, we have to have the data on what it means to move that button. Like, is that, will that work? Will that move work? <coughs> Why does that button work right now? What makes, it, what makes it successful or not successful? And so once you get that viewpoint, if you go work somewhere else, you kind of realize like, yeah, you know what, no wonder I tell them I want to do this, doesn't work. You say, I want to do this, and here's 15 reasons and data points to support why. That's how you get something built. And so that was definitely something I didn't really quite realize until after I had left my own company and was working at the place I am now. You, what part of that didn't you realize? So Did we kind of just naturally started figuring that out when we were at Out of Milk and we started doing it because we would, we would change things minor and just see, just see drastic changes in retention, people coming back and things like that. And so I guess we never realized it, but we just... You were some, it was something you were doing, we just started, but you didn't realize. Yeah, we, we just started doing it to figure out what was going on. But it's never like a conscious decision of like, oh, we better start you know, right. logging all these statistics. And then relating it to the new company that you're at. That's right. a whole other thing. Why the people might be making decisions a certain way. And right. how to, yeah, how to use that as, as, a, as a piece of influence to get things done. Right. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for writing that better than I did. Well, I, just a different <laughs> way. Just a, um, Data is king. That's that's one of the very first things we learned. Uh, even from the start to finish, data is king. Want to get investment? You better have the data. You want to build your product? You better have the data. You want to do support? You better have the data. It all comes down to data. Isn't that interesting? Because see, I'm a, I'm a very metrics-oriented data kind of person. I like to make decisions based on that. There is a component of it for me that's emotional, probably more so than a lot of a lot of folks in this professional. But what I found over time was with things like sales, that sales actually work on an emotional level for a lot of people, especially in the consumer market. And you were in the consumer market. So it's what you're telling me is kind of contradictory to what I to what I know so far. Um, maybe you can help me understand how those things fit together. I mean, you weren't there was something about the product that sold, and that sale was happening probably at an emotional level. It wasn't happening because you're showing them data. Right. Do you know what that was? And well, I think there's a difference between the sale and the decisions you make to better the product. But aren't the decisions that you make to better the product sales within the company? I'm not sure what you mean. Sa sa there's sales to other people in the company or sales to uh, your board members or sales to... Right. Um, sort of, kind of. So our primary market was what um, the industry calls the mummy market. It's the women that are running a household, um, generally in their late 30s, 40s, and 50s. And, uh, you know, it's a big market. That's all the food blogs and all that stuff, that's all a mummy market. Yeah. Big market. They're the ones that have the credit cards. Um, so whenever you have the numbers and you're like, yeah, we, we should probably do this, like the numbers add up. But you, you also learn your market segment. And you also have this human aspect where, you know, you get 200 support tickets a day. You're seeing what people are complaining about and it doesn't always add up, you know, like, so you have something that says, um, you know, I, I think we should, um, try, I'm trying to think of an example we had. Um, it's just, you know, you're like, I think we should do this. A-B testing shows this, but then you start looking at your support tickets coming in you go, man, like people are complaining about this and it doesn't match up to the data set that we've come up with. And so you have to start gut checking things, right? It's, like you can't make, data is king, but it, it's not like, it's not God. It's, there, there is still very much a gut check aspect. I know I'm explaining that poorly, but 
the more you interact with your users, which we interact with our users a lot, you know, through all our social media support, everything, you learn their attitudes, you learn their responses, you learn who's going to be happy with what, and you start learning the different segments of consumer base. You start learning who the happy people are, who the people that can never be satisfied are, and you start kind of figuring those things out. And so, as you're thinking through features you need to add or things you need to change, regardless of the stats, you can you just kind of inherently know like, you know, that's not going to fly. Like, even though we A/B tested it and it went very well, if we roll this out, I could be upset. And so, there's no way to quantify those things, but it's it's just something you and the company have to understand like gonna have to take this risk and there's no easy way to explain that it's just you have to be very in touch with your user base and i think that's one of the things that made out of milk so successful our our support and outreach the company uh i would say was light years beyond any other startup we worked with our average ticket response time was only like two minutes um our satisfaction rate was through the roof um we didn't just send canned replies. I personally replied to hundreds of tickets a day sometimes um, until we started getting some support people. Um, the pulse of the community was like extremely important. And a lot, I think a lot of companies forget that. And I think that's what helped us drive so many successful features is because even if we didn't always have the data or have the data, we knew our user base. And so you just gut check it a lot. So I know that's not really a real answer, I think that's a great yeah. answer. Yeah, I mean, it's an honest one. It's what you did. Yeah. <laughs> and, those, and those decisions weren't always right. There were many times where even just simple things, were like, I remember one time we sent an email that said, um, hey, you guys, we have a new coupon feature coming. The you guys was a mistake. Oh. Right? right? And so you never know what the trigger is. So for all the right things you do, one wrong thing really sets back the boat. And it's like, well, you know, if maybe if you'd done some metrics, you would have remembered not to say you guys. You don't always make the right choices. <laughs> right. Wow. Well, this is great. This is so much fun to talk to you. Um, you know what? I, I we've done it. I think this is a good episode. What um, what else do you want to finish with here, James? Um, any last questions? No, I, all the questions I've ever had have been checked <laughs> out. No, like I now there's a, like a chapter of the. The Chase story that now I know, that I didn't know. Yeah. It's also made so cool that you built this company and you got to have that experience and go out to San Francisco for years and then you're like, I'm gonna go back to where they have grits. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the story. Yeah. Ironically <laughs> enough, the best Southern breakfast I've ever had oh, in my no, life was in San Francisco. Oh no! Yeah. There's, <laughs> it, there's a place in Emeryville that we would walk to every Saturday <laughs> and get a classic Southern breakfast. And it blows away any southern cooking I've ever had in my life. Oh no, it's, that's terrible. See, so here's the thing: I just tweeted recently from the from our Twitter handle about the fact that our stats in Raleigh versus our, our listens in in San Francisco they were almost even. So I had like a Raleigh versus San Francisco <laughs> kind of tweeting, <laughs> and now they know they have better grits than us. This is just <laughs> that's no good. So um, hashtag grits, I guess that's too two thousand twelve to say yeah. a hashtag. And I'm not sure that works anymore. It doesn't. It's too old. YOLO or whatever. I've got to learn. I've got to learn some new. Yeah, San Francisco is an awesome place, and people love it there. But um, just the city life wasn't for me. But for every for every one person that I know that I've talked to from there, I feel like I'm the only person that didn't enjoy living there. 
Wow. So you really learned all the right work. lessons, the, the right things to say when you're <laughs> You've got a lot of great things. No, but like, it truly is like an awesome place, but it's just like, I don't like the city. Yeah. I, I would go for weeks without seeing like anything green. Uh, one for me. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. Any thoughts you want to leave with a someone listening that's a, a soon-to-be entrepreneur or a hopeful entrepreneur or a young software developer or something along those lines? Sure. Um, and I'll give I'll give three points I've given before that I think if you're going to run a business, they're, they're the three most, or at least the kind of business I'm talking about with, with startups and software and things like that. The three things that I think are the most important. Number one, maintain the healthy work-life balance. No one is impressed if you can work 18 hours a day, but your work's going to suffer and your life's going to suffer and you and your employees are going to get sick and hate each other. Maintain work-life balance. Just because you're a startup doesn't mean you can't work a normal work life. And that was something we learned the hard way. Two, data and statistics. From day one, set your platform or product or company up to take count of what matters. Your users, who's using it, where they're from, when they're coming back. Just do it now because if you wait as long as we did to get it, you will find yourself severely crippled. And three, customer service to me is the most important part of your company. The more you interact with and deal with your customers, the more you know what they want, what they need, what you're doing wrong, and what you're doing right. Customer service, number one, always. I know that's cliche, but it is the God honest truth. So that's my three tips. That's awesome. Well, this has been fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, once again, we're Reflection as a Service, and we just appreciate everybody joining us.